Amen. Good morning, everybody. Hey, like Dave said, uh, my name is Trevor. I'm a, a member of All of Life. I also help on staff, um, and I just get the privilege of teaching today. I'm excited to be here. Uh, real quick, uh, just to touch on what Dave said about the men's rally. They've, they've done this cool shift where they're starting to meet uh, weekly in small groups, um, but they're kind of every like six to eight weeks, they start a new one. And so there's this really easy on and off ramps. But then really awesome, uh, they've done like every other month, they're doing just like one big rally where it's not really attached to a teaching. It's just like a, a night for guys to get together and enjoy one another. Um, and Dave always does something fun. There's always good activities, things to do. Usually there's dinner. So like this time there's going to be some a meal provided. Um, and Really specifically, I remember one of the last times I went to one of these rallies before that's what they were. Um, I remember sitting around this fire pit and I looked around and there was like, what, 24 guys up at Tyler's place? And I looked around and I thought, every single one of these guys has my back. If I got into a car accident, ran out of money, if something happened, I could call any single one of these guys and they'd be there for me. And it was one of the most significant moments of belonging I've almost ever had. And it's because Dave and Matt and some other guys have done such a good job of creating opportunity for us to be together. So if you're disconnected, show up. Like Even if it's just starting at the rally. It's January 7th, uh, 7 to 9 p.m. on a Friday. I'd encourage you to be there. Uh, now, as far as the teaching goes, uh, we are wrapping up our, our kind of like miniature sermon series on Advent. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, does anyone remember the first three titles we've gone through so far? Shout them out. What have we done? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, and what are we on today? Prince of Peace. Here we go. So uh, I'm really excited about this. Um, Dave already read it, so I'm not going to read it right now. Uh, but here's where we're jumping in. is looking at Jesus, this foretold son, this child that has been given for us, and the title of Prince of Peace. Now, think with me for a moment about peace. Why is peace so hard? Whether it's your own internal sense of peace, whether it's the peace you have with your neighbor, the peace you have in your home, the peace that our country has with others, why is it so challenging and fragile? Ultimately, like peace requires a lot to make it go, right? Peace is not something that happens accidentally. Peace that just like pops up. It requires significant amount of trust and energy and self-sacrifice. And peace very clearly, as we're thinking about it right now, peace is a lot more than just not violence, right? A, a helpful parallel is thinking of marriage. Marriage is a lot more than not adultery, right? Just because you're not sleeping around with someone else doesn't mean you have a healthy marriage. And so when we think of marriage, it means, it means like wholeness and intimacy and trust and partnership. It like our lives are founded on it, right? It is deep. And in the same way, peace is a lot more than not violence. Peace is this like deep and complex thing, which is why peace, true peace, requires someone amazing to bring it. And it is why the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for peace is shalom. This is actually the word that Isaiah uses here. He says that this son is a prince or a ruler of shalom. And shalom is fantastic because it, it's like this iceberg where like the not violent part is just the tip of it. And then underneath is just this immensely beautiful and complex thing. And so 
this Hebrew word, if, if you could summarize it, and I'll, I'll try to expand this a little bit, but summarizing it, shalom is a state of being that brings to mind ideas of perfection, something that is whole. There's no parts missing, no parts, no chunks missing, something that is complete, something that includes elements of, of health and wellness bodily and, and also at a soul level. Uh, it also includes elements of like prosperity, right? Thinking of flourishing. You're not insecure and afraid, but rather you are whole because of the abundance around you. Also personal wellness at a, a deep, deep level. And it includes all of these things. And if it's helpful, uh, you can cast your mind back to the Garden of Eden and think about that being the original state of shalom in the world. What was the state of the human soul in that moment? What was the state of our relationship between God and man? The state of our relationship with the earth, how we treated it, what we did to it, how it provided for us, how all of it was inundated with God's presence. So when we talk about shalom, we're both saying, just like not violent, we're saying there is an absence of something, right? So when we talk about shalom, there's an absence of strife and conflict, war, but it's also the presence of serenity, life, flourishing, and justice. Shalom captures everything being in the way that God created it to be. Shalom is the world, you, all things, as it should be, in a state of rightness. Some other examples from the Old Testament will just fly through. Uh, the book of Joshua, he builds a, an altar to remember God, and he uses shalom stones. Stones that are, it's translated uncut, meaning like there's no parts missing, they're whole, they're perfect, they're complete, there's no fractures. Um, that same idea of stones can actually be applied in the Old Testament to walls, where walls can be shalom, meaning all the, like, the individual bricks are sound, and whole, and then they come together with no parts missing. There aren't any holes in your wall. Your wall is shalom. It is full of order. It brings life and protection, right? Um, Job, in his, uh, the, the book of Job, he says that his tent and his family is secure, and he uses the word shalom because nothing is missing. All of his belongings are there. It is shalom. Uh, this same idea can actually be used in a Hebrew greeting where you can actually inquire about someone's shalom. Like, oh, how's your shalom today? And you're actually asking about their internal state. Are you in a state of wellness? Or is your life disordered? How are you? And so all of that can be baked into what we're going to be talking about today. But here's what's really amazing. Shalom is more than just a state of being as a noun you can actually use shalom as a verb. You can do shalom to someone or something. And so if we understand shalom as a verb, it is actually like you can understand it as making something complete or whole. Restoring something to being complete or whole. We see this in Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah is a story where Israel returns their city and they rebuild the wall. And this is actually the words of Nehemiah. The wall was completed in 52 days. But the word there is the wall was shalom in 52 days. 
So shalom includes repairing and restoring something, taking all the parts and pieces and bringing it back into order and completeness. Proverbs 16 talks about um, bringing relationships back into a state of shalom. You can bring shalom through reconciliation. You bring peace and wellness between multiple people. We also see uh, shalom being used in terms of justice in the book of Exodus. Uh, Here in Exodus 22, essentially what it says is, if you let your cows wander into someone else's field, I mean, there's only like four or five of you I know that have cows, but if you do it, if you let your cows wander into other people's fields and they cause damage, you then need to do shalom to them. You need to repay and restore what has been destroyed, both in terms of damages, but also notice relationship between you and your neighbor. Your obligation is to restore and reconcile with your neighbor. Now, here's what's interesting. As we are defining what a state of wholeness is or a state of rightness, that's the noun version, and then shalom also is the verb of how to get there. So now we're trying to define how do you get to shalom. It becomes really important that we know what shalom truthfully is and how to get there through shalom, what those things truthfully are. Essentially, what I'm asking is who defines it? Who defines what the world should be like? Who defines how you get there in the right and just way? Because as I look at my own heart and my own selfish perspective of the world as it should be, Honestly, it can be a little bit unhelpful. Husbands, you know this, if I may go here. (laughs) You might feel, (laughs) Keith, you might feel like your home would be a little bit more peaceful if your wife was about 45% less emotional, right? Hey, I said I was going there. But like, in all seriousness, we've, you guys have probably felt that, right? If my wife was just a little bit less emotional, my life would be a lot more peaceful. If my kids were just a little bit more obedient, if they just did what I said the first time, my life would be, probably be a little bit more peaceful. But what if your rightness ended up suppressing the people around you? What if your wife's version of rightness meant that there was more connection and engagement, more openness and intimacy, where you shared your hearts with one another, where you listened deeply to the needs of her soul? What if that was rightness for her? But we as men are like, no, I just want you to put it away. It's easier for me when you are like less loud and noticeable. You can see where shalom or your idea of rightness becomes dangerous. And you need a better definition. Some of us in this room have been the victim on the end where someone else's peace came at the cost of your suppression. In order for someone else to maintain their peace, they had to put you down. If we zoom out to a national level, right, we all are Americans. I would venture to say most of us are are patriots. But if we even look at, oh, we want America to be great. Like we've been a superpower for the last six decades, right? And if we want America to stay number one, right, we don't want America to be number two or three, we want to be the best. But that also means in our state of competition, like what does that mean for the nations around us? What does that mean for the people living in Honduras or Indonesia? For us to maintain our greatness, what does that mean for the people around us outside of our borders? Your version of rightness and shalom can be dangerous. 
And ultimately, when I'm on the throne of my own life and I'm pursuing my own goals, I will end up suppressing and hurting others. And you have felt this because you've been on the giving and the receiving end of it. The bottom line is that you and I, when we are apart from God and his definition, we don't have the ability to seek true shalom. And we don't have the power to bring it. The way that God defines and brings shalom is actually right in front of us in Isaiah chapter 9. Would you read this with me again? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So shalom means light and life rather than darkness and obscurity. You, God, have multiplied the nation and have increased its joy and they rejoice before you. Shalom in God's eyes means safety and multiplication. It means rejoicing of joy. He continues, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He's talking about the harvest time when things are plentiful and bountiful and there's abundance in the world. And then notice, shalom is also the removal of something. Verse four, the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. God defines shalom as breaking of rods of oppression the removal of burden. And then he continues in verse five, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood simply means like the blood-stained uniforms of soldiers. They will be burned as fuel for the fire because they don't need them anymore. And then he continues, to us a child is born and a son is given. The government and rulership shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of shalom, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Shalom is him in rule. He establishes, upholds with justice and righteousness forever. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So God's shalom as he gives it to us in Isaiah 9 and, and elsewhere in scripture is clear that his kind of peace doesn't require anyone to be on bottom. It's not a system based on competition and scarcity. It's a, a life based on generosity and abundance. And if we think of that in, in like at a person level, what does it mean for me through God's reign to be a person of peace and shalom, right? Like it means rightness and wellness of soul. So again, thinking like absence and presence, right? Absence of shame and fear and anxiousness, absence of contempt, but then also gift and presence of serenity and joy and gratitude, that sense of safety and belonging when you're with someone you love. That is your soul as God created it to be. And if one person can be that way, then you can have two people then engaging, right, in some way of having shalom between them. And so like person on person, we can think of relational shalom where there's the absence of conflict and mistrust, the absence of competition, the absence of 
abuse and dominance, but then also the gifted presence of deeply knowing one another, loving and valuing the other, being faithful and honoring to one another, creating security with one another. And if you can have a group of people doing that with another group of people doing that, and then they live in shalom with one another, you have the absence of oppression, subjugation, struggle. You have the removal of militarization, but then you have the gift and the presence of equality and partnership, caring for the situation of the other, mutual aid and justice. That is what shalom brings. It's Christmas, and so we're singing a lot of Christmas songs, and this song that has just like gotten through the barriers of my heart has been, Oh Holy Night. And this is the verse that's done it for me. It's the third verse, and this song is all about the shalom that Jesus brings, and it says this, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Those lyrics were written in the 1860s, in the middle of slavery, as Christians were wrestling with the identity of other human beings. And this is what they penned. This savior, this shalom bringer, breaks chains in this slave. Not only is he free, the absence of oppression, but he's being gifted equality and dignity and brotherhood and love. That is shalom, what the shalom bringer does for us. And then God's shalom extends one level further. It actually extends to the earth itself. All of creation. Like this starts getting like crazy. Like what does it mean for the sun to be in shalom? What does it mean for all of the heavens to be in shalom? Honestly, I don't know. (laughs) No idea. I don't think scripture gives us a ton of factual evidence. But one thing we can look at is Genesis 3 where there's this fall and God says that he curses the ground. The earth as we know it is not as it should be. I don't really know what it should be like. I mean, will there be mosquitoes? I don't know. (laughs) Um, But what's clear is it's not as it should be. And one of the languages that scripture uses is it says, the lion will lay and be at peace with the lamb. The predator will not consume the prey. That same verse says that the child will sit in a nest of snakes and be safe. What that's saying is even the, like the very instinct of predation will be gone from the world when he brings peace. Again, in detail, I don't really know much more beyond that, but it's moving when we consider it. And where we are in Isaiah, right, we're focusing on the book of Isaiah. The reason Isaiah exists as a prophecy is because the Old Testament kings were not bringing shalom. Their responsibility, being the leaders of God's people, was to bring and cultivate shalom. And they were failing miserably. Which is why, when Isaiah says, a son is given, a child is born, and he will be the prince of shalom. The hearts of the people of God would have looked at that and said, finally, our restorer, right? Our king who will be better. 
We need a prince of restoration. We need a prince of rightness. They would have felt that and we feel that today. And so this prince, this ruler, this leading official of Shalom, not only does he define what it is, and I would say in beautiful terms that all of our hearts begin to sing as we think about it, he defines it, but then he has the power to bring it. He has the power to accomplish it. Think about the, the three titles preceding this, that uh, this son, Jesus, he is a wonderful counselor. If you were here a few weeks ago, that means that he has the counsel and the wisdom of God. He knows what shalom is. He knows what God created all things to be. And then he gives that wisdom and counsel to us because you and I need a unifying vision of shalom. Not a, a, a vision of shalom that is bland and homogenous, but a vision of shalom that is diverse and vibrant, but unified through the wisdom of God. But not only is he wonderful counselor, he is mighty God. And so he therefore has the power to create that peace. Meaning he has to do something about evil and he has to rebuild all things. And he has the power to do that because he is, what was the word? Do you remember the word for mighty God? El Gabor. I'd never heard that before. That was really fun. Um, but not only is he El Gabor, mighty God, he is everlasting father which means that we come to our father as though children, meaning we let him lead us and we let him love us as if we're part of his household. And so he then rules and reigns over our hearts and lives for eternity, bringing us to shalom. And all of this, his wisdom, his counsel, his power, his fatherliness is all pointed at the single purpose of bringing restoration. That is the goal of his mission. The life of Jesus Christ is pointed at restoration. And we know that he brings it in one particular way. And we see this in Isaiah, again, chapter 9, verse 7. So his pathway to shalom. How does he get us to shalom? Isaiah 9, verse 7 says this. Of the increase of his government and of shalom, there will be no end. For on the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. What it's saying is that this king will establish and create shalom through justice and righteousness. And here's why that's important, because you can't have, if shalom means like everything being right, you can't have rightness if you don't have an accurate distinction between right and wrongness, right? And once you've identified the rightness and the wrongness, you now have to do something about the wrongness. It either needs to be like in some way dealt with, and that is what you and I call justice, dealing with wrongness. There's two forms of justice in the world and talked about in scripture. And this is where we're going to spend a few minutes. And this is going to feel a little bit like, wait, Trevor, weren't we talking about like peace? Why are we talking about justice? Hold on. Here's why we're going there. Because justice is the frame that peace grows on. You cannot have peace if you don't deal with what is wrong. 
So there's two forms of justice. The first one is called retributive justice. Now, that's the root word of retribution. And retribution gets a bit of a bad rap because um, we often think of retribution in a negative sense. It's actually more neutral. Um, all that it means is giving back to someone what they deserve. It can actually be used in a positive sense, meaning you are reimbursing or repaying someone or rewarding someone for something good that they have done. You can retribute something to them fairly. But we often are most familiar with it in the negative sense as punishment for wrongful actions. And because we think of it in a negative sense, we go a step further to like vengeance and retaliation. And I'd like for you to walk those back. That's not what it means. It does not mean retaliation and vengeance that is vindictive. It means repayment, equal repayment. And so when we attach the word retributive justice, what it means is a controlled and a right use of punishment or penalty that's a fair repayment for wrong. We are repaying wrong with something that is fair and right. So within retributive justice, a penalty is equal to the wrong. And that penalty is not just appropriate, it's actually morally necessary. Just repayment is not just appropriate, it is morally necessary in order to create justice. If I could give you an example, because that feels a little bit weird. I don't really like electric cars, but let's say I bought a brand new Tesla, right? Let's say I bought a brand new Tesla and I'm out cruising and someone's not paying attention at a stop sign and they rear end me. Maybe some of you guys have Teslas and you're like flinching right now. Someone rear ends you, right? And they get out of their car and they go, oh, I'm really sorry, man. You know what? Here, let me just make this right. Here's 20 bucks. Have a good day. It's not justice. Like, no, you owe me a car, right? If we took that another step further, if, if someone took the life of a human being and in court, we go through the whole proceedings and we say, judge, hit them with a pool noodle. <laughs> now, some of you guys are like, wait, aren't you talking about murder? And now you're making jokes about pool noodles? The, what you're feeling, that little burst of like, what? That's called justice. That's the wisdom of God inside of you saying that's not fair. So when we talk about retributive justice, our culture tends to be like, oh no, that's mean. But you feel it inside of you. It's not wrong. Equal and correct consequence is just and it is right and it is necessary. But there's another kind of justice. This kind of justice is teased out by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, um, he says this, quote, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, meaning equal consequence for equal wrong. You've heard it said an eye for an eye, but a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, and then he goes on to describe a form of retaliation that's not about tit for tat justice. It's actually about restoration. In Jesus' words, peacemaking. It's about shaloming. That's this form of justice that Jesus teases out in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus there is confirming God's 
preferred version of justice. And I use the word preferred because we got to be careful. God does use retributive justice, and he's right. He's good for doing that. But he prefers justice that restores. So by far, he's always, like constantly, even in the Old Testament, God gets a really bad rap in the Old Testament where people are like, oh, he's really wrathful and angry. No, that's just not true. If you read, even to read Isaiah, he's constantly saying, you people have given yourself to wickedness and evil and I will hold my wrath. Come back to me. Turn from evil and come back to righteousness. Let me restore you. Come back to me. I will be patient. There's this uh, story in the book of um, Joshua where there's these evil pagans and they're literally sacrificing babies for decades to pagan gods. And Joshua's like, God, let me at them. Let me at them. They're evil. I want to go wipe them out. And God says, no, I'm being patient with them. And again, you and I, that bit of justice in us goes, that's wrong. And so we can't just throw out God's retributive justice. It's good. You want it. We all want it. But he also does something that blows our minds where he seeks restoration above tit-for-tat justice. But here's how... Here's how restorative justice works. There's a wrong situation, someone who's doing something wrong, and there's a consequence that should come down in retribution. Rather than letting that fall, he redeems the wrong and he restores it to what is right. And he does that by saying, repent. Turn from wrong, come back to me, let me reform your heart. He says, see your sin, name your sin. That's what we call being poor in spirit. He says, I will make you whole. But then he says, this part, I will also pay for your penalty. That part doesn't just go away and God sweeps it under the rug. He says, I'm working to restore you and this part hanging over your head, I'm going to place that somewhere else so that you don't get destroyed by my justice. I can actually restore you in the process. And for you and I as human beings, we need to be honest in that, like, what do you and I deserve? How righteous or not righteous are we? So Jesus as the prince of shalom, the prince of rightness, has both the, the, the ability to define shalom, but he also defines righteousness. And again, in the Sermon on the Mount, you guys are probably familiar, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, anyone who has angry at his brother has committed murder in their heart or has committed murder already. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks with lust after another person has committed adultery already. Both of those things are, the consequence is the death penalty in that culture. And what Jesus is doing is saying, like you and I, he's saying this to us, you and I do not bring rightness and shalom to the table. He's saying even in your hearts, they're bent towards evil. 
You can hold it all together on the outside. You can act really nice on the outside. But even in your heart, you are bent towards evil. So this is like the state of honesty that we need to come to. No matter how good you are, you don't bring completeness to the table. You bring need. And something needs to be done. Shalom can't exist unless this gets dealt with. And again, it can either be removed through retribution or it can be restored. For me, I'd much rather be restored than removed. So do you listen for the next few minutes as we talk about how do you become restored? It starts with this. Number one, you realize that your restoration does not begin with your self-discipline. Your restoration begins with God's desire for you to be restored. He wants you to be restored, and that's where it begins. He wants to see you redeemed, and he's willing to pay for it. He knew that we didn't have the power to restore ourselves, our relationships, nor our planet. And so he does this, Isaiah chapter 9. He gives us a prince of peace, someone who can bring shalom to us. We know this is his goal because of John 3.16, right? God sent his son not to condemn the world, but that it would be saved through him. That's the goal of the Prince of Peace, is to bring shalom through restoration. The second step is see that it begins with him and hear his call and repent. See that we don't bring rightness to the table and go back to God and say, I'm yours. Begin to believe in his desire to restore you. And what happens at this point is this Prince of Peace does something for us. And Isaiah continues to foretell this in Isaiah 53. If you would read this with me. This is the, what happens to the consequence that's hanging over our heads. God sends a Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 53, he's called the Lord's servant. And it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the penalty that brought us shalom. It's with his wounds that we are healed. Now all of us, we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way, our own rightness. And the Lord has laid on him, this Prince of Peace, the iniquity of us all. So through faith, God takes this penalty that hangs over our heads and he shifts it onto his servant, this Prince of Peace. And here's where this gets incredible. The servant spoken of here in Isaiah 53. He was the only living person to ever be shalom. Other than Adam and Eve who fell from grace, he is the only living human who has ever been right. Who has ever been whole. He was righteous. And he became peace and wholeness for us. 
He's taken our consequence, but also transferred his shalom onto your shoulders and your soul through being killed on a cross. Now think about that. If anyone in human history should have been killed, it should not have been the man who was whole. It was wrong that he died because he was right and he did not deserve it. But he looked around at a world full of people he loved and was loyal to and he said, I will take it and I will give you my rightness. That is what Jesus on the cross does, but he doesn't stay dead. In three days, he raises back from the life, he defeats death, and with his resurrection, he literally transfers his rightness onto you. The penalty that hangs over us, he pays for it, and then the righteousness and the goodness that he has, he gives it to us. And so what we do in response is we believe. We just say, Jesus, thank you. And we begin to let him restore and shalom us. If you have not believed this before, would you believe it now? That God is desiring your restoration and he is desiring to make peace with you. Now, if you believe this, if you've made that decision now or in the past, here's the amazing part. He will begin shaloming you. He will begin making your soul right and whole. Again, the story of Jesus is not just about Jesus died and so now we don't have to pay a penalty. It's actually Jesus died so your soul can be restored. It can be made right as it should be. John chapter 14 says this. Jesus leaves peace with us. It says, I will send the helper, Jesus is saying this, the Holy Spirit. And the Father will send in my name and he will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you and my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So the way that Jesus shaloms you is he actually sends his Holy Spirit to you to bring you peace and wholeness, to begin a process of transformation. Galatians chapter 5 defines the fruit of the Spirit Again, the same Holy Spirit that's here in John 14, Galatians 5 describes it. And it says love, or excuse me, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. That is the fruit of the Spirit who restores your soul. So think about that list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That is the natural result of a soul that is being restored. It's the natural result of a soul that is in a state of shalom. And this is the shalom that Jesus is giving you. He's giving you his spirit. 
within the church, we call that transformation, sanctification. Today, it might be fun to think of it as your sanctification is actually God shaloming you. He is bringing you back to peace and wholeness. You are being shalomed. So just like the wall we talked about with bricks, he's actually restoring individual bricks and putting those together into this complex thing called you, bringing you back to wholeness. And so though shalom, rightness might not be around us, it's just not going to be. The world is still full of sin, both yours and that of someone else. Most of that sin is beyond our control. And so there will continue to be brokenness all around us. But again, Jesus leaves his peace with us. And he says very clearly in John 16, just two chapters after what we just read, that he says, I've said all of this to you, all of this teaching, so that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. He's just flat out saying like, it's going to be hard. But I've left my spirit with you to restore you and give you peace. Now, no matter what is going on around us, there can be at least the beginnings of shalom inside of us. And I'm using that to mean inner peace, inner rightness between us and God. And God's intention is not that you create your own peace and your own power. We've felt that and it doesn't work. God's intention is that we receive his peace and the shalom that he gives, which is why in Philippians chapter four, he says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, notice his pathway here through prayer and supplication, meaning request. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which transcends or surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is his intended avenue for our shalom and our peace, is that we come to him. When the world is full of tribulation and brokenness and sin, we come back to him and we come back to him and we ask for his peace and his presence. And as we're doing this, the, the like flow of God's grace and his shalom does not just like ping and stop. Again, Jesus' entire mission is to bring shalom. And one of the ways he's chosen to do that is to give you shalom and wholeness. And then he asks you to go and give it away. So he's asking, actually asking all followers of Jesus to become people of peace. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. He says, love your enemies and pray for them. He's saying, will you bring shalom and peace, restorative justice to the world around you? And if you're interested in doing that, there's three things. I forgot to make a slide. There's three things I would encourage you on. Number one, if you want to be a bringer of shalom, adopt his vision of shalom and rightness. Adopt the king's vision, not the culture's vision. Number two, be willing to bring restorative justice. And it will feel unfair. 
Jesus' literal instruction in the Sermon on the Mount is when someone slaps you, let them slap you again. (laughs) And that's not fair, but it's because he's wanting to restore rather than remove them. So what that means is give up your eye for an eye. It does not mean become a, a doormat, let people walk all over you, have no boundaries. It does not mean that. He has put his dignity and his strength in you. Use his wisdom to navigate those things, but don't seek your own justice, seek his justice. And number three, bring the gospel. It is literally the king's path to shalom. The good news of Jesus is his chosen path to wholeness in the universe. Bring it to the people around you. The gospel is wholeness and shalom itself. I'm over time, and I really want to give you guys an illustration. You want to do it? All right, let's do it. Um, There's this type of artwork in Japan called kintsugi. Uh, Some of you guys might have heard of this. I've got a a photo I'd like to show. Um, Essentially what kintsugi is, is it is the taking of broken things and restoring them. Now, It's been modernized and there's this really crummy thing where people intentionally break things just to make them pretty again and then sell them to you on Etsy. But (laughs) the way that this started is it was a dedication where you'd said, even if something breaks, I will make it beautiful and continue to use it. And it was a form of art. And so what you would do is if you, you dropped a dish in the kitchen is you'd pick up as many pieces as you could and you would save them and then you would take it to an artisan and they would smelt gold and they would do this to it. They would take something that was broken and they would make it beautiful. And what it was is it was an object in your home that you were willing to be devoted to, that you were willing to pay an exorbitant price for so that it would represent the beauty of restoration. This is what the gospel is. The prince of peace takes your brokenness and he says, I'm devoted to it. I desire it to be restored. I will pay an exorbitant price and fill the cracks to make it beautiful. And I will bring it into my home and my family so I can rejoice over it. This is literally your soul. It is in God's possession and he treasures it. Not because you were beautiful, but because he made you whole. Ephesians says that he gives us his kindness so that the whole world will see his glory. He showers his riches because it's an example of his generosity. He prizes you. He loves you. And this is probably what heaven will be like in some ways. This is totally speculation, but I imagine heaven in some ways will be a bit of, you can still see the cracks, but you see them filled with the glory of God and you worship him. And this is what we have to look forward to. This is what the Prince of Peace will finally accomplish. He will bring shalom. He has brought it in the person of Jesus and our souls are being mended, but he will bring it to completion. This is what Christmas is about. It's this time of like tension as we say Jesus has come, but he's also like, it's still messy. He's going to come again. Like this is the tension we're in. 
But this is where our hope is, is that the king, the prince of peace, will bring shalom. Would you pray with me? Father, Jesus, our prince of peace, um, this week I've just been brought to my knees that you of all people should not have been killed. You were the only human who was whole and complete and right and good as it should be. And you looked on us and said, I will take your consequence so that you can become kintsugi. You can become shalom. Father, I just give you gratitude for the shalom of my soul, the ways you've mended me and are continuing to mend me. Thank you for the work that you're doing in all of us in our church, the ways you are currently mending and restoring souls, bringing them to shalom. Would you equip us and call us um, with eagerness to join you on your mission that we become bringers of peace to the world around us. Amen.